black ball. Black, black, black ball. up everybody my name is James D. Fiore and this is Blackball. I am 46 years old when I grew up I feel like I grew up there were two things that were really special when I grew up like in the era that I grew up in one was hip-hop because it was the golden era anything between 1986 and 96 was really anything that I was listening to at the time and the other thing was sports I mean maybe I'm being a little bit generationally centric but I got to see Mike Tyson in his prime. I got to see Michael Jordan in his prime. You know, I got to see Wayne Gretzky. I got to see Mario Lemieux, all in their primes. It was like a golden age of sports for me. It was pre-steroid era and all that kind of stuff. And there was one athlete that maybe along with Michael Jordan was considered to be um, at just an entirely different level. And his name was Bo Jackson. Even the video game... um, I can't remember what, what it was called. It was an NFL game for, I think, Super Nintendo. And Auburn State had this player that they just called number 34. I don't even think that they were allowed to use Bo Jackson's name in that video game. Maybe they didn't use anyone's. I, I can't really remember. But this this video game character was just like, if he caught the ball and you knew how to play the game, it was a touchdown. It was a Whether it was a punt return or whatever. And it's based on the fact that Bo Jackson had one of the most mythical and amazing careers as a double sport guy. He was also a track and field star in college, and he was just at another level. And if there was anybody that should be assigned to write the story about this man, it is my guest today. He is a nine-time best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author, and he is the author of this book called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, and his name is Jeff Perlman. Jeff. How are you, buddy? That's some pretty good music, I gotta say. Nice job. Oh, thank you very much. I try my best. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, we've been trying to do this for a while. I thank you for coming. I thank you for making the time. I know you're busy. Um, as I said to you off air, I've ordered the book, but it hasn't come yet. So, but I I feel like I I have an advantage just being like the age that I am because of how I grew up. I'm not sure how old you are, but if you re- remember what it was like back then when Bo Jackson was playing, um, obviously, like, you know, it's, it's how can you not really know something about him if, if, if you don't, if you didn't follow sports? Um, you are, I would say, someone, someone described you to me uh, when I did my Jeff Perlman deep dive that you were one of the most successful sports authors in American history, um, no. and when, especially when it comes to biographies. Not true. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, you're humble there. I mean, I mean, there have been so many really great, great ones. I, I, it's high, it's a little bit of hyperbole. I'm just being honest. It really is. All right. Well, well, fine. I'll take your word for it. Top five, top five, maybe. No, top five, not top 50. (laughs) You're the author of Showtime. Um, this was made into a series, I believe, wasn't it? It was adapted for a series. Yeah. Winning time on HBO. That's right. Um, you're the author of this book, The Rocket That Fell to Earth. Uh, yeah. You're the author of this book, Sweetness, the, the, the 
enigmatic life of Walter Payton. You're the author of this book, Three Ring Circus. Mm-hmm. You're the author of this book, Barry Bonds and the Making of an Antihero. And of course, the one that we're here to talk about today, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. I'm sorry to, to put your literary life and flash it before your eyes. But what, first of all, made you, I mean, it seems like, a, like an obvious question, but why now and what made you decide to write this book? I just want to say, first of all, it's really funny because um, this is not an indictment of you at all because it's a reasonable question. Yeah. My son asked me the other day, what's a question you're tired of asked answering? Like, what's the number one question? And I said, Jeff, why Bo Jackson and why now? And <laughs> we all went to Jason. question. It's not an unreasonable question. Um, it is a reasonable question. Okay. And I'm going to we'll tell see. you something. I'm going to go deeper than I usually do, which is, so usually you have like eight seconds to answer a question. It's it's radio. It's a quick hit, whatever. And I always say, you know, look, I my last book was about Shaq Kobe era. That wasn't really nostalgia for me. I love nostalgia. I thought about my bedroom wall. The poses are hanging up on the wall. One of them was Bo Jackson. And I'm not saying that's not true, but it's definitely overly simplistic. Like, number one, there is no reason why right now. I just, it was a book that entered my head when I was trying to come up with an idea. Like, it's not even a sexy answer, but it's the truth. And I do think, I feel like there's an eternal quest. You asked a question, so I'm going to give you a real answer. There's an yeah, eternal please. quest for me. There's a difference between iconic and great. Right. And the search is always to find iconic when you're writing these books. Like it really is. It's, it's to find iconic. And the best example I can give before this book is I wrote a Brett Favre biography. Now I, I can't stand Brett Favre and everything he's done, but that aside, I always think like Brett Favre, Ken Griffey Jr. are basically parallel athletes. If you think about it, they played in the time period. They were hugely popular. They were best known for playing with one franchise, even though they played for others. They're both in the Hall of Fame, on and on and on and on. But why is Brett Favre iconic and Ken Griffey Jr., I would just say, is really great, um, in my opinion, when it comes to a book. Like, why is Brett Favre iconic and why is why is uh, Jr. not? And I think it's about moving people and stirring people and doing something to people that pulls them in a certain way. You know, like... Um, I think Bo Jackson is iconic for the, in a way, for the reasons you talked about, like you and I'm 50, so I'm a couple years older than you, but we grew up in the same era and there's some mystique about Bo Jackson. He just came along and he did these two sports and he did them at such a high level and he looked like a statue and you hear all these amazing stories about him. Some of which you could, you could see him run up the wall. You could see him throw out Harold Reynolds. You could see him run over the bars, but a lot of them you didn't see. He did. We, I heard he ran a four, one, three, 40. There's no tape of it. I heard a lot about a lot of home runs and runs are no tapes of. And there's some mystique about that. And then the fact that he vanished, that he basically ended his career at 31, never really to be heard from again, takes him from really, really interesting and a period piece to sort of iconic and mysterious. So I think that honestly is why I wrote that book. Yeah, that that that's a great answer too, because there there are certain um personalities in sports where you're obviously not writing because of the stats, you know, mm. like you said, he, he, he retired quite young and, you know, but it, with Bo Jackson, it, there were these Paul Bunyan like stories uh, where, yeah. 
I didn't know um, half of what, like, you know, you're a, I'm a cynic. So, so half of them, I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, there, there was, um, and the ones that I can just rattle off. And I swear, I didn't research any of the myths because I just remembered so many of them and I didn't want to waste my time. But like, mm -hmm. you know, some of the myths would be like, you know, he did a backflip while standing in water up to his waist, you know, yeah. or he ripped out a tree um, from its roots. Uh, or, and then there's some, and you know, and I don't know if those are true or not. Um, the one <laughs> I did see in an interview once where he said, um, the one thing that he knows isn't true is that someone said that he was running from someone and he jumped over a river, like 40 feet or something like that. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, I was 25. <laughs> yeah. It was a ditch when he, after he beat up the, the hogs in his hometown and he had to escape the farmer, he jumped over a ditch. Yeah. That's yeah, funny. only 25 feet. Um, yeah. but but he said he was running for about 40 yards. So then, you know, funny. a 3.9 would have probably put him at 25 feet, I would imagine. Um yeah. and then I heard you on an interview recently, and um I kind of wanted, if you don't mind, you telling the story again, but the the um the story about when he was in the outfield and getting like heckled mm -hmm. um oh. Yeah. is amazing to me and 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 the whole thing with uh, the the natural not coming out until 40 sure. days later so if you could like uh, tell that story because that that was really compelling i feel like it's very emblematic of him actually it's probably the best story as far as all the features which is he was a junior at auburn he was playing baseball it was the first night game in the history of the university of georgia's field um foley field they just installed lights and they had Auburn come to play the first night game. And usually no one really cared that much about baseball at, at Georgia. Maybe they get 800 fans, 700 fans, 600 fans. But this was a huge crowd. Vince Dooley, the athletic director, is there. Different dignitaries, the pep band, all that stuff. And Bo Jackson is playing right field for Auburn. And um, he's getting heckled by the crowd from the very beginning. Because behind right field at this field, there's a fence. And then behind the fence is a little hill with all these kudzu vines, which if you're not from the South, they're basically these vines that overgrow real quick and you kind of can hold on to them real tight. And all the fans would sit there with the kudzu vines on kudzu hill and drink and get wasted and heckle opposing players. So Bo Jackson's playing right field, he's getting heckled. First at bat, he flies out. They start heckling him more. Um, so he's catching all kinds of grief. Second at bat, Larry Lyons was the pitcher for Georgia, a junior college transfer. He throws a meatball and Bo hits it deep left field and it hits the light fixture and falls like hits the light fixture. And this is 39 days before the natural um, came out in theaters, which obviously is the famous hit the light scene. I actually just was on a radio show with someone yesterday who said he was at that game too. And I've heard this from a lot of people and I'm always skeptical of this kind of thing, but I've heard it from enough now where he hits that shot and the place just goes dead quiet, right? Just dead quiet because it's at Georgia so how are you supposed to respond? But you just saw this amazing feat of strength and power. So the inning ends, he runs back out to the right field, and the fans behind Kudzu, on Kudzu Hill start bowing at him and doing a bowing motion, like, we are not worthy, we are not worthy. And these are Georgia fans. His next at bat, he homers. His bat after, at bat after that, he homers for the third time. And his last at bat, he doubles. And um, the fans boo him. And... <laughs> Which I love. And the thing I didn't mention is the next day, Larry Lyons, the pitcher who, uh, who gave up the home run, sees Bo sitting alone in the Auburn dugout before the game. They were playing another game the next day, and he walks up to him and he goes, hey, I just want to meet the guy who made me a part of the history books. And uh, wow. he said Bo Jackson scowled at first and then said it was my pleasure. So.
Yeah, I mean, and and those are the. I mean, I, I had never heard that story. Um, yeah. It's funny how my reaction to it is, what a great fucking story, and just completely not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> no? Well, um, you know what? Wait, I was gonna say the one thing that's interesting is there's so many stories that aren't on video, right? So there's so many things that are not on video that normally would make it really hard to believe. Like you'd be like, oh, give me a break. That's bullshit. That didn't happen. Blah blah blah. Um. I feel like the video of him running up the wall when he was with the Royals, running across the wall, this is in Baltimore, and running down the wall. Yeah. It makes anything believable because no one's ever done that before since we've never seen that before. We've never seen it since. I really think that video is very important and that it makes it believable. Yeah. And you know what's funny? I, I, I'm not a, like a Deion Sanders hater, but I, I don't put them in the same class. I mean, Deion Sanders was really fast and he was a great football player and all that kind of stuff. But as far as the the two sport thing. I mean, I, I just, you know, it was, he seemed like a PR guy, Um, you know, and it seemed like, you know, he was clearly talented, obviously Dion Sanders is a talented athlete, but as a baseball player, he was like, eh, you know, like, you know, he wasn't a star player. I didn't think. No, he was a slap hitter. He kind of like Bo a little bit in that. I think Mookie Wilson at the, at the most in his prime, maybe. No, but Deion Sanders was not Mookie Wilson. He wasn't that good. Not even close. But he, um, the thing about Deion, like Bo, I honestly think, is um, neither of those guys devoted full-time to baseball. And if both of them – if Deion Sanders had said, I'm just going to play baseball and that's it, I'm not – like both those guys needed off-seasons playing in the Dominican, playing in instructional league. Both of them did. And they didn't have it. And Deion, I mean, he was insanely fast. You know, he could track down balls like nobody's business. He could run the bases like the wind. He wasn't a great hitter. I don't know if he ever would have been, but he didn't really work on it hard enough. And Bo could have been – Bo had Mike Trout talent, but he didn't really devote himself to it. I'm going to change my answer to Willie Upshaw. <laughs> more of a Willie Upshaw. I would say more – if I were to compare Deion Sanders to someone, I would say more like at his best, at absolute best, like absolute, absolute best, he could have been like an Brett Butler, like that kind of player. That's pretty generous. Yeah, yeah, which is good. Brett Butler was a hell of a player. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was what was it, Bo Jackson's teammates? How how did they feel about him? Because you interviewed, I think I heard, um, I, I I don't know if it was you or 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 someone that was interviewing say that you it was like seven hundred interviews or something. Seven hundred twenty. Seven hundred twenty interviews. So you must have yeah. interviewed a bunch of his ex teammates. I did. And um, what was the overall vibe about Bo Jackson? You know, a lot of these times, these athletes. They seem reclusive and they're, they're, they're hard to get to know off the field or whatever. Was it sort of like that or? Very much so. He was, uh, he was not buddy, buddy. He was not loosey goosey. He was not warm and cuddly, not a bad guy. Like he wasn't hated, but he was, he could be real prickly. I, I always, I keep coming back to prickly is my word for this question. Um, there's a story, uh, I don't know, a decade ago, he did an autograph show out here in Southern California. And he had a defensive lineman, former teammate on the Raiders named Greg Townsend, who happened to be a really, really good NFL player. And Townsend was doing the autograph show too. And he didn't know Bo was going to be there. Bo didn't know Greg was going to be there. And, oh, no, Greg did know Bo was going to be there. And he brought a helmet and a jersey for Bo to sign, right? Because they, they were teammates. He thought it'd be cool. So he walks up to Bo and he's like, hey, Bo. And Bo's like, yo, man, what's going on? Hey, it's good to see you. Good to see you. And Greg goes, you know, I brought a, hey, can you just do me a, do me a solid? I brought a helmet and a jersey. And Bo goes, well, I'm going to have to charge you for that. And Townsend's like, ha, ha, ha. And he's like, no, nah, I got to charge you for that. If I give it to you for free, everyone's going to want it for free. And 
Townsend said, he said he actually paid him. It was like $400. He paid him. And as Bo was walking away, Townsend said, you were an asshole when we played together and you're an asshole now. Wow. Yeah. So he has that in him. You know, I will say, and it is, it actually is a fair argument. It's a fair excuse for these guys is a lot of these athletes, Bo Jackson included, were taken advantage of by a lot of people through the years and they were cash cows for a lot of people. And, and this doesn't apply to Greg Townsend, who's African-American, but I do think Nike, yeah. excuse me, Nike. Well, oh, Nike made Bo kind of rich, but yeah. I just think um, there are a lot of older white men through the years who saw black or who saw African-American Southern athletes as cash cows and they wouldn't, they would never have them date their daughter, or maybe even come over Thanksgiving dinner, hmm. but they certainly enjoyed, you know, making money off of them. Is that like an indictment on uh, the KC Royals owner or is that, you know? No, it's more just a, a reason that I think a guy like Bo and a lot of those athletes are very guarded and reluctant when it comes to people asking for things, you know, like they just, they just, they're used to people taking advantage of them and people taking their money. I mean, Bo, when Bo was at Auburn, he was a senior in Auburn. He had a kind of, he called him a business representative, but he was an agent, which you're not allowed to have, but he had one. And um, when Bo was a senior at Auburn, he was going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers had the number one pick. And they arranged with Bo's agent to fly Bo to Tampa Bay for a physical. And this is during Auburn's baseball season, Bo's senior year. And Bo flies to Tampa, gets a physical, is en route back. And Hal Bear, the Auburn baseball coach, says to one of his teammates, where's Bo? And teammates, like, he, he flew to Tampa to get a physical with the Bucs. And Hal Bear is like, he did what? He's like, he flew to Tampa to get a physical with the Buccaneers. And I was like, oh, my God. And it wound up costing Bo Jackson his remaining baseball eligibility. Bo always blamed the Buccaneers owner, Hugh Culverhouse. And he always blamed the guy who represented him uh, for, Freeland Abbott was his name, for taking advantage of him. And I just think after a while, enough people take advantage of your trust. You have a guard up all the time. And he definitely did. Yeah, but yeah, no, I, I would th that makes sense to me because um, even while you're talking about um, him taking advantage, being taken advantage of, the behavior is like similar. Like, I th was it Wade Boggs that had that reputation of being that guy who, when he went to baseball card conferences, he was just like kind of mean about it, like the soup Nazi, you know, and all he wanted was make his money and leave. But it has a different ring to it when it's Bo Jackson, when it's a black athlete. Like, it, it, like the, the white athlete just oh. seems like an asshole. <laughs> Do you know There's what I mean? a long, I mean, look, a big part of this book actually is, um, and I think it makes, I definitely think it makes some of the people at Auburn a little uncomfortable, but is the discrepancies in the way white athletes are treated in black athletes. I mean, you go, I went through all the Auburn media guys they would do back when Bo was there. And it was actually uncanny. The number of white athletes who are described in the media guide as scrappy, hardworking, dogged, rugged. And the number of African-American athletes who are sleek, powerful, naturally gifted. And like not one black guy was dogged. Not one white guy was naturally gifted, really. Of all the 100 players, not one. And then um, when he was at Auburn his sophomore year, well, two things. When he was in Auburn his sophomore year, the, uh, the athletic dormitory was going under renovations. So they put all the athletes in mobile housing units throughout campus. I mean, all around Auburn, the town of Auburn. Pat Dye was a head coach at Auburn, a football coach. And he called uh, Bo and his roommate, Lionel James, and another roommate in, three African-American guys. And he said, um, he said, listen, I know you guys are fooling around with white women. I don't have a problem with it. We brought you here. It's a pretty white campus. I don't have a problem with it. But uh, I don't think 
the campus is going to respond well to that. So we're going to put your housing unit as far off campus as possible. What? Right. And then the other thing is there was a fraternity at the, at the time, Kappa Alpha. And they had um, every year, it was a hugely popular fraternity at Auburn. Every year they would have the Southern Heritage Parade. And they would have the brothers dress up in, you know, uh, you know, uh, Civil War uniforms, the grays of the South. They'd have their girlfriends wear antebellum dresses. Wow. Uh, and I was told they had, they would hire little African-American kids to dress up as slaves. And oh. they would do this parade through Auburn. So, you know, one of Bo's teammates said to me, he's like, a black teammate said, you're there at Auburn, right? And you bleed for these fans and these fans cheer you and they love you and they praise you and they ask for your autograph. But sometimes you do ask yourself, would the, how would they react if I was dating their daughter? How would they react if uh, your friend brought me over to their house for Christmas? Like, how would they respond to that? And that is the deeper thing at hand there. Yeah, you know, when you're talking, it's funny because um, I I don't know how much you follow hockey or anything, but I, I can actually think of a fairly modern day example of, of that. Um, still sort of happening in the media, um, especially the sports media for some reason. But uh, P.K. Subban, when he played for the Montreal Canadiens, I would watch him celebrate after a goal and and the announcer being like, and that's the kind of hot-dogging and, sh and showboating that they just oh, don't yeah. want to see here in Montreal. And then you'll see like um, like a teammate of his, like, uh, like Gallagher or someone, um, do something even more like fantastical yeah. after uh, scoring a goal and then be like, that's why he's the heart and soul of the Montreal Canadiens. Of course. And it's weird because I don't even know if they know that they're doing it. Do you know usually what I mean? Not. Usually not. It's very ingrained. It's very ingrained. I mean, that stuff still goes on. It's, I mean, it goes on all the time, you know? Like, it just does. People have different expectations for African-American athletes and white athletes. And I always say, like, you know, I um, I grew up a big New York Jets fan, which obviously is a, has lent to years of therapy. But... <laughs> You think about it, right? The most popular player in modern Jets history was Wayne Corbett, the scrappy white receiver. People are debating whether Wes Welker belongs in the Football Hall of Fame. Like, why do we love white slot receivers so much? Like, why? When, like, I mean, Wes Welker is playing next to freak, freaking Randy Moss, Julian Edelman. Again, you know, like, there's just something ingrained. And if, if we're honest about it, there's bias there. And you can make the argument whether it's wrong or right or whatever, but it's definitely there. Yeah, I mean, and it goes beyond the slot receivers. Why do I know who Don Beebe is? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe because he did the whole Nate Newton thing. But yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Which yeah. is weird. This is weird. I don't know. It's weird. I always, from the time I was a kid, I grew up in a very white, very conservative, very sheltered town. And weirdly, I always rooted for the African-American athletes and the teams. Like I grew up in the 80s when St. John's was a great basketball team with like Chris Mullen and Bill Wennington. And their hated rival was Georgetown. And I lived not that far from St. John's. St. John's was wildly popular where I lived, and I always rooted for Georgetown. I just like yeah. almost was like, uh, fuck these people. I don't know. You know, I, I I kind of think I know exactly what you mean. I grew up in like um, you know, a, a very white suburb of Toronto, and uh I gravitated to hip hop culture so much that like I had friends that um we were really uh kind of broken up about when Hank Gathers passed away um yeah. we thought he was going to be one of the greatest like basketball players of all time kind of thing and um a friend of mine um i'll never forget this he said that um he was really kind of messed up for a few days about it or whatever because the day before hank gathers died he was flinging um like he he wore a necklace with a, a crucifix on it and he was like uh, lying on his bed just 
doing nothing and flinging it on his finger and it accidentally flew off and it sliced Hank, his Hank Gathers Sports Illustrated pinup thing that he had on the wall on the neck and Hank Gathers died the next day. So he was like, well, oh, you think that's a sign where? So for the next week, he put up a picture of Larry Bird and just kept on flinging it. <laughs> oh my God. To see if he could find a way to kill Larry Bird. Wow, but, that's harsh. But, but but I know what you mean. Like I I, I kind of voted, you know, I I I I you know rooted for black athletes. Um, but like I, I remember growing up and finding out that was it baseball that they never had a black manager or 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 something like oh, that. It depends. They had Frank Robinson was the first in the nineteen seventies, but there were very few. Yeah, there was like hardly any, and and I was like, oh my god, that's crazy. Or or people uh, like openly like um, broadcasters openly discussing things like, can a black quarterback really make it in the NFL? <laughs> like. Oh yeah, well, that was a thing for years and years. That was yeah. a thing. It's, it's and you know it's it's insane. Can I, not only that, it was could could a could you have a black middle linebacker? You would not find many black middle linebackers pre Mike Singletary. And the thinking was that's a thinking man's position, and they can play outside linebacker and they can play inside linebacker. They can't play middle linebacker. I mean, it's in absolutely insane. That makes no sense whatsoever. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko, and I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Um, okay, I want to pivot here a little bit because, and I'm just I'm not going to stay on this for a while, but you, you, you seem like you were okay talking about it before. Um, before I before I put this up, I, I think that the best biographies, not just athletes, but especially things like politicians and world leaders and stuff, but I would include athletes in this pile, are are unauthorized biographies. And there's so many obvious reasons as to why that probably is, right? And 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 one of them is that if an autobiography isn't a mea culpa, like in large part, then it feels drenched in PR, and you know it just it, it is what it is. Uh, there are certainly exceptions to this, but I, that to me is, is is what I would say. Um, so I saw Bo Jackson tweet, if someone releases an, quote, unauthorized biography, it means they are using someone else to profit for themselves. Don't be fooled into thinking this is a true representation. If you want to hear the real story, then wait for me to release it. Um, from everything that I've heard about your book and, and, and listening to you talk about it and listening to people interview you, it seems like a very generous book towards Bo Jackson. It might have a couple warts, but it, it feels like authentic. And it, and it, and from what I understand, it's a real page turner, but it certainly doesn't shine like a darkness on him. Correct. First of all, that's a totally legitimate question to ask. And I actually, I mean, when people are like, you can always tell when people are like, all right, here's a question. It's going to be tough. Like, that's a fair question. That's actually yeah. a really good question. I got no beef with that. Like, first of all, I don't even know. I've had this talk recently with another friend. When have you seen an authorized biography? Now, there are autobiographies, right? Where it'll be Bo Jackson with Dixie. Bo Jackson wrote an autobiography in 1990, but he didn't write it. You know, like they never write it. You have a ghostwriter almost all the time write it. Yeah. I sit down with you, they record the interview, and then you put it out. 
But when have you seen an author, like how many authorized biographies are there? There are almost none. Either it's an autobiography written by the person, fine, or it's a biography written about someone. But usually those aren't quote unquote authorized because they're about someone. And usually if someone wants to, you know, they'll just do it, they'll do an autobiography. So the whole, I hate the term, I've unauthorized biography because I just view it as like a biography because I don't know what they are. I don't really know what an authorized biography looks like. I'm sure there've been some. Yeah, I guess, yeah, it'd be really rare if there was a situation where someone was like, yeah, you can write my biography and then just be like, but I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, because that means, okay, the only way you could have, the only way that could be done well, truly the only way that could be done well is if the subject matter is making zero dollars and zero cents for it because it can't be biased. And once that person's getting paid, there's a bias to it. The person that's being written about can't have access to the final draft before it comes out and the person can't put conditions on it that is the only way you would have an authorized biography truly legitimate authorized biography and i don't know if that ever happens i literally don't know in history if that's ever happened you know yeah where someone says yeah i'll give you all the access you want and i don't care i don't need any money i don't need money off of this and i don't care just you know i don't care if you kill me in it or you destroy me in it and call all my ex-girlfriends that's cool like when has that happened <laughs> no, I so don't i don't know it's a weird term but to to answer your question a little i I uh, reached out to Bo shortly after working on the book and we had a conversation on the phone for about a half hour. I sent him a bunch of my books and a letter and he called me back and um, we spoke for about a half hour. It was a really nice conversation. He was in a good mood. He was driving to get his wife food. And um, he basically said, you know, this is an exact quote, but he said, I'm not going to help you. I don't, I don't mind you doing this, but I'm not going to be involved. I, I just, whatever. I don't, I don't feel motivated to do it. I don't want to do it. Okay. that's fine like that's totally fine so then i interviewed 720 people and i got i mean i've talked about this a lot but it was my great fortune he wrote a book in 1990 called bo knows bo it was actually written by dick shap with bo jackson or bo jackson with dick shap dick shap is this legendary legendary journalist and writer someone i met once i'm friends with his son jeremy who's at espn Hmm. and um dick shap before his death donated all the audio tapes all the transcripts, all the notes from that book project to the Auburn University Library. When I was working on this book, someone at Auburn said, you know, sitting in our basement is all this stuff. And I said, wow, I would love to see that. And they charged me like 250 bucks to duplicate it all. They did. They sent it all to me. And it was, I don't know, it's a guesstimation, but 500, 600 pages of straight from Bo Jackson stuff from when he was 28, 29, almost all of it not used in the book because it's so much. Or not almost all, but a lot of it I used in the book. So that was a game changer for me. And in a way, that was better because his memory was 30 years fresher. That's amazing. What yeah, a find. So, That's like a diary or something, you know? Yeah, like, 100%. It was absolutely the best find of my journalism career. Probably, can you I give write. me an example of maybe a few insights that um, that that you, you are sort of breaking in your book from, from, those, from that specific source sure. material? Yeah. So um, I would say one of the interesting ones was, so, all right. There are things basically he alluded to in his book, but he didn't go into. Like he would say something about something, but he wouldn't really go deep into it. His autobiography example would be when he was with the Royals, his least favorite teammate by far was Kevin Seitzer, who was a third baseman, a good third baseman with the team. And Seitzer, I talked to other guys about this, was definitely a a nag and kind of a gnat. He was always buzzing around your head and you're swatting at him. He's just a pain in the ass. He's a guy who would like flick your ear or joke about your ugly wife or stuff like that, right? And... um. In 
these documents from Dick Shep, Bowen in a great detail about beating the shit out of Kevin Seitzer and made it clear it was Kevin Seitzer. In the book, I don't think he makes it clear it's Kevin Seitzer. The detail isn't very much. I'm like, that's a great moment. You know, that the everything about Seitzer and, and Seitzer. The other thing that was really interesting, and they definitely didn't include in his original book for probably understandable reasons, is that he had an agent in college and that the agent was giving him money, you know, oh. and like that was kind of a big deal. Now, 30 years later, it's not controversial or anything. Like he, you know, he he was one of 10 kids, dirt poor. Bessemer, Alabama. I have no beef with him trying to make money. It's the but don't they usually suspend kids for life when they do stuff like that? And they're not eligible well, for drafts yeah, and all that? He didn't lose his eligibility, so he yeah. did you know. Um, but, um, so that was really, like, the details on that were really big and really helpful. And also, there's a lot, like, just when you write these books, you're looking for a lot of little things, like, little things. That he talked a lot about, like, being a kid and watching his grandpa, like, hunt animals, skin them, and he went through the process in great detail. And it was really eye-opening for me. It was really good. Yeah, there, there's always been like a part of Bo Jackson that like like maybe 20% of Bo, of Bo Jackson reminds me a little bit of Carl Malone. Do you know what I mean? Like no, they're, I, they're, that, oh, that sort of rural. Yeah. Like and and sort of like leave me alone, you know, and and like you know, you know, like sort of like uh um you know, like like I need to go to the cabin and be by myself. For a long time, for long periods yeah. of time. Um, and then one of the most interesting things I read about um, was uh, Bo Jackson's uh, apparent, you know, proficiency creating bow and arrows. Oh, yeah. Well, he also, one of the funny things, like, he was very intimidating. So, like, when you were a teammate of his, you wouldn't, he would do stuff and people were very nervous about speaking up to him or confronting him. And one of the things he did when he was at the Royals is he would set up an archery target in the clubhouse walk to the other side of the clubhouse and shoot arrows across the clubhouse. What? And teammates hated it, hated it. But nobody really had the guts to say anything to him. You know, like, they just didn't. They find There's one thing he talked about in his notes, there's nothing. They had a, I think his first base coach was John Mayberry. And all the players really hated Bo doing this. And they finally got John Mary, Mayberry to talk to Bo. And Bo was like, basically, like, these guys are a bunch of wimps. They won't even come up to me and talk to me. They send the coach. So Yeah. Was there... um. I, I don't know. I, I, I just thought of it now, but it, like, it would make sense to me. Do, do, do these reclusive guys have like that one exception, you know, like that, like, this is my friend that like everyone knows that. Sure. Like, yeah. Who is that yeah. exception for both? He got along really well with George Brett with the Royals. Yeah. Um, he got along really well with Mark Gubaza. Those guys actually came to Raider games. They were actually both on the sideline when he got hurt with the Raiders in the 91. Oh, really? Game. With the Raiders, Howie Long, Bill Pickell. But again, mostly he was going home to his wife and kids. Like he just, he wasn't going out partying with rare exception. He wasn't going out partying. He wasn't a big drinker. Definitely wasn't a drug user. So that's amazing. Like, like, cause that's such a rarity, you know, that's like, David Robin, like, 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 I feel like David Robinson is like, you know, uh, this, this lily pad in an ocean, <laughs> you know, like there's, cause you know, Disagree. I know guys. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Like a few of the professional uh, hockey players, even, and and they're they're just like, you know, there, there was a, a series between Ottawa and Toronto like ten years ago or twelve years ago or something, a long time ago. Um, and uh, my buddy runs a bar in Toronto, and apparently all of the uh, it was ones that the Senators lost the, that the series, but they were at that bar until like four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, the night oh, before. Right. You know, it's, you know what? There's many. 
we hear those stories the most, but um, there are a lot of guys who do kind of come and go and like just stay quiet and go. Like not all these guys are party guys, you know, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but those guys. But there's the more. spectrum, I guess, Bo Jackson to Dennis Rodman or something, you know. There's a wide, there's a wide in between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> okay, so the the book, the book has been out for, I, I think about five weeks, something like that. Came out the 25th, so three and a half weeks. And what has been some of the, like, I, I, I you know, I've, I've read the accolades. What have been some, of, I, I'm just curious what some of the, like, criticisms might have been, because there's always going to be the detractors. And I, I'm always curious to see if, like, because sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes you get an author where they're like, I could see that criticism. I disagree with it, but I could see it. Is there anything like that that comes to mind, or is it like, no, oh, fuck, the, fuck the critics? I mean, I've gotten a few, like, the thing I've never been able to do is write a like a perfect book as far as errors. Like I hire two fact checkers for this book and stuff always gets through. So like an example, and this stuff drives me up a fucking wall, but like uh, there were some dorm monitors at Auburn. Their name was Rusty and Sally Dean. They were husband and wife. I spelled Dean, D-E-A-N, it's D-E-E-N. That stuff burns me up, you know? Um, yeah. And there were like six or seven of those being honest like that. Someone will be like, hey, I love the book. One thing, hope you don't mind me saying, but blank. And you're like, like I said, um, I had someone driving east to west, but he actually drove west to east, right? And if you may think, you sitting there, you may think, well, that's not that big a deal. And like, nobody's going to notice that. But wow. I know it. Yeah, that's, and a it nick in the, in the, that's a nick in the wax job. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah and I see that stuff and it, it drives me crazy. I, I, will not, I swear, 10 years from now, I'll remember these errors and I'll be like, God damn it. God damn it. You know, there was one, um, it's interesting. The, uh, Bo's first college baseball game was against, uh, Illinois state and the box. I got the box score from the game, which is a great find for me. And it said the pitcher who gave up Bo's first hit. All right. I confirmed it. I looked in the newspaper as well. The newspaper said it. Well, it turns out whoever's keeping score of the game at Auburn listed the wrong pitcher. So the pitcher I have giving up the first pit is the wrong. Now, it's one name from pitcher from Illinois State in 1982. No one is going to notice that except the pitcher from Illinois State. Nobody. Green I can man. remember. Yeah. But now I know it, and that pisses me off. So you make the changes for future editions. And, yeah. You know, I try I try so hard. And I every every book, I, I just I want it to be perfect, and I just haven't figured out how to do it. Um, I want to get back to the whole running on the wall thing. Um, because I, you know, I'm sure a lot of the book is dedicated to the, just his athleticism. Mm. They, they they said that like his, his body and, and just the way that he was sort of naturally constructed without having to like, you know, was the thing that set him apart. Like, and especially at such a young age, is that you found as well like like can you give me a little bit of a glimpse into where his athleticism came from maybe what his like parents were like like you know is it is he an anomaly i mean he had a dad who's a grandfather who played semi-pro baseball um his parents were both big his dad who didn't have much to do with him was a big guy sort of bulky and you know his name was ad adams i really think though the athleticism i mean he, he obviously was born with these gifts he has a lot of gifts that he was born with um but i also think like he spent his boyhood in rural alabama leaping over ditches throwing rocks at cars jumping scaling the fence surrounding his house a five-foot fence so his mom wouldn't catch him sneaking out um beating kids up you know like 
running away from bullies, being a bully and chasing kids, like playing Mike Tyson. What? Has a Mike Tyson kind of vibe yeah, to it. Yeah. It does. He um so that's where you know there were there were no AAU recruiters back then. There was no like we're gonna sign you, we're gonna get you a special hitting coach or a special football coach. He just developed it in a very rural way, beating the shit out of each other. That's basically how he developed it. And by the time he got to high school, he was you know, he was a year older than the other kids because he was held back a grade. So he was a 19-year-old senior. So he had that on them, and he also just had this freakish athleticism. Yeah, it was track and field, wasn't it? That first set him apart. Like that wasn't that his first sport. Uh, it was kind of baseball track. Baseball was really his first sport that he competed in. I would say track was his real love. Like track mm. was the sport he enjoyed the most. The he solitude really of it, probably. I imagine he just was really good. And there's something simple about track and field, you know. And like, yeah, I don't know. Um, when you when you when you first sat down to write this book and you started. Uh, uh, um, you know, interviewing your, your 700 interviews. Um, what was the most common thread among people that, that knew him that you were surprised to hear about, if anything? Uh, I, I have a good, I have an answer for common. I don't have an answer for uh, sure. surprise. I would say the yeah. most common thread is holy shit. Like, you know, holy shit, I saw him do this. Holy shit, I saw him do that. Holy shit, you're not going to believe this. Holy shit, you're not going to believe that. Like. I've never written about an athlete with more holy shits and more. Can holy you give shit me a, a few holy shits? Holy shit! When I was when Bo was playing in high school at McAdory High in Alabama, he hit a ball so high that um, by the time it came down, he was rounding third base. Which I interviewed about fifteen people for that game, and it turns out it was probably true. Holy shit! Bo won the state decathlon championship as a high school junior. Won it again as a senior didn't take his sweatpants off for the entire competition, sprained his ankle midway through, and still was ahead by enough points that he didn't have to run the 1,500. Holy shit, the day after that, he pitched his only game of the year for the baseball team and struck out 13 in a state playoff game. Holy shit, he reported to the Raiders, and he ran a 4-1-9-40 on grass and pads. They didn't believe him, so they asked him to do it again, and he ran a 4-1-7. Uh, holy shit, when he ran up the wall in Baltimore – um, he actually did that a couple years earlier in 1986 in Charlotte in a minor league game. But holy shit, you had to be there. Holy shit, that same ballpark in Charlotte had a chain link fence um, protecting the outfield from the uh, from the stands. And one time, Bo, and it was about five and a half feet high, Bo ran, stopped on a dime, bent his knees, jumped over the five and a half foot uh, chain link, <laughs> and then turned around with the ball and jumped back over it again. Like, it's just on and on and on. It's an endless string of holy shit. And yeah. so it's fun. He's like, he's Paul Bunyan. You know, he really is. How many, like, were there any that were just like, all right, that's enough. <laughs> well, the funny thing is there was one in his book that became an all right, that's enough. He wrote in his autobiography um, that he went, he started his Auburn career by going over 21 with 21 strikeouts as a freshman at Auburn. So his first 21 at bats were all strikeouts. And that was a holy shit one for me where I was like, holy shit, that's really bad. Like, holy shit, I was a college cross-country runner. I probably could have made contact on one of those balls. And yeah. like, like that's really bad. And I actually, when I was promoting, when I was trying to get a book deal, I included that in the information. I was like, he started out so bad, blah, blah, blah. Well, holy shit, it's actually not true. He went two for five in his first game against Illinois State. He just got it wrong. And also, 
holy shit, in his autobiography, he wrote about his first carry as a college player getting stuffed at the line. His first college as a co- first carry as a college player, he ran for like nine yards up the middle against Wake Forest. So I wonder what that is. I wonder what that, you know, is it, um, you know, I, I wonder if humility is Memory is faulty, man. Memory is faulty. That's all it is. He's not lying. He's certainly, there's no reason for him to lie about this stuff. Memory is as faulty. So am I to understand then that he wasn't really cocky? Like, like, you know, like oh. he, he, he wasn't a chat box. Like, even if it was just oh. on his own, like, you know, no, the opposite, not at all. What not a gentleman all. really then like, like as an athlete, you know, like that, I, I, yeah. I like that, you know, like I, I, a man that just goes about his business. <laughs> I would say he's a guy who does not have a room with a million Bo Jackson trophies that he wants people to look at when they come in the house, you know, like, yeah. When he reported to Memphis to play minor league ball after, uh, after his time at Auburn, he got a, uh, an apartment and he had the Heisman Trophy almost as like like on a table, like he just he just wanted so he put it on his table, and he had a uh, a picture of him and Herschel Walker, and that was like that was it, you know, like he was like he just wasn't he got you know like he got his first when he got his first minor league hit they saved the ball for him he's like eh, I don't want it he got his first major league hit they saved the ball for him that's nah, okay like this wasn't that guy you know wow. Maybe that's why he's charging four hundred dollars now because he's like, Fuck maybe, maybe <laughs> would have been yeah. worth a lot of money. Um, when he hit the light, it wasn't like Roy Hobbs where it like became no. fireworks for some reason, right? No, okay. it just hit the light. Just hit, just the, hit light. the light. Okay. Well, it's the, yeah. you know, it, I, I wonder. It, it makes you wonder, like, if there was a writer in the, <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in the stand somewhere, and it's like, no. oh, holy shit, do I? Have well, the movie here? came out thirty nine days later, so it'd have to be a quick rewrite. Yeah, yeah, it's just one little scene. Yeah. <laughs> um. You know, I, I I like the idea. Oh, I was I know what I was going to ask you. Um, what was what was his childhood like? Like, I mean, like it, it was running, you know, rural, um, in, in the south and running from farmers and and fighting and stuff. What was his family like though? Like, what what was that life like? I you said he didn't see his dad, but did he? You know, did he, what, what was his relationship like with his siblings and his mom? Well, there was such a wide age disparity. I mean, his oldest sibling was in the house by the time he was born. Um. His closest relationship was with his mother, uh, by far. He was as loyal of a mother's, a mama's boy as you could possibly imagine. Um, his mom, Florence, worked three jobs. She was a maid at different motels. She also worked for a cleaning service. She was tough as tough can be. I mean, I've written a lot about Southern kids growing up in that era. And it's definitely black and white, but I would say it's more predominantly African-American where the kid does something wrong back in the day. And the mom, usually the mom, sometimes the dad will be like, all right, am I going to beat you with the stick, the shower rod, or the belt? It's your choice. And if it was a stick, the kid would have to run out into the backyard and get a stick. And if the stick was too small, the parent would say, no, come back with a bigger one. And then he'd beat the shit out of him. And Bo had that kind of mother. It was, which, what am I going to beat you with? One time she strapped him to a bed and just beat the shit out of him with a belt, his back. Another time she had a gun in his hand while she was beating him and said, if you do this again, I will shoot you. Um, wow. Fear, But knew, the thing is, like, she knew her kid was trouble. Like, Bo was trouble. He was not an easy kid. And she really wanted to beat the freaking trouble out of him. And he later really appreciated that. I mean, nowadays. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Nowadays yeah. should be arrested for child abuse, but back then. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's, but, it, it, I mean, the different... I know people say this is cliche, but it's like, it really was a different time. You know, like it wasn't, it was sort of a normalized event in a lot of households. Like the belt was not sure. some something that was foreign to me. And I grew up in the seventies and eighties, right? Like it's, yeah. you know, it, it is what it is. Um, yep. 
you know, and 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 he, the fact that he says that it helped him is interesting too, because that seems really bizarre now. But in the context of back then, maybe he's right. You know? Yeah, like, I think he is right. I think he needed discipline. I'm not saying beating your kid is a good idea, but he definitely needed discipline. He was all over the map. He was running around. He was beating the shit out of kids. He was beating up hogs. He was beating. You know, it was a violent little world he occupied. And I'm sure his mom felt like we this. I have to find a way to make this work, and she. I mean, you can't argue with the results. The guy, like, yeah. he's a dad. He's a grandpa. He's financially secure. He's financially successful. Had success. Got went back and got his college degree. Um, married has been married for almost forty years. Uh, you know, he's a success factually. Are his children athletes? No, not in really? any major way. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yep. Um, and uh, you know. When I look back, I still think like I was. I'm surprised. I, I guess I forgot the whole 31 years old thing because, it, you know, I guess he was so. Um, he he was really iconic if you were 13 years old, and I was. That's uh, how old I was. Like there was a, you know, um, uh, a sort of vibe that was that was kind of crazy. But does he miss that? Like, is is it is it like does he long for the days, or is he just like a forward looking fella? Um. No, he's definitely not. He's not a guy who sits there and mourns. You never hear him on TV bashing the modern athlete. You never hear him longing for his glory days. Like, he just moved on. It's part of the joy of him. It also makes him a better sub. He's much more interesting as a, you know, from a biography standpoint than if he was, like, uh, calling games for the White Sox and was in the booth and we saw him every day, you know? Like, um, I have a friend, a great writer, who just released a, a Charles Barkley biography, and... His name's Timothy Bella for the Washington Post. It is a great book. And I think, but I think, and Barkley is obviously a more famous modern figure than Bo Jackson. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing Bo has that Barkley doesn't is mystique. Like yeah. we see Charles Barkley every day. So we're familiar with Charles Barkley. Bo Jackson, poof, vanished, gone. What's next for you? I do not know yet. You have any ideas? P.K. Subban? Can you write P.K. Subban book? I don't even, wouldn't recognize him if he walked down the street. Who does he play for? Chicago? I don't even know anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as as he, I'm a Habs fan. So as soon as he left Montreal, I was just like, because I thought he left Montreal because of racism. I really did. I thought the GM was a racist. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I think that his stats tailed off and everything because he had just invested $10 million in a hospital there. And then they traded him like four months later. And it was just like, what? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm that guy. But um, whatever it is, we'll be looking forward to it. The book right now is entitled The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson by Jeff Perlman. Thank you, sir, for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one. That was fun. Um, the The fact that he found uh, a 600-page, like basically a diary um, for, for, from Bo Jackson uh, is is one of the craziest finds that I, I can even think of. Um you know, that he was able to actually, you know, in the unauthorized biography, and I do agree with with what uh, Jeff said about, you know, uh, how it's kind of weird that, or almost meaningless when it says unauthorized, because, you know, either the person is involved with the book or they're not. And in any event, uh, you know, the fact that uh, he was able to sort of climb inside Bo Jackson's head, along with the 720 interviews and and everything else and all the holy shit moments, um, you know, that's why it's been described by everyone 
that I know who has read it and all of the interviews that I've seen with people who have read it. Again, I ordered my copy eight days ago, but I ordered a hard copy and it has not arrived yet. And that pissed me off, but nonetheless. Um, yeah, uh, Bo Jackson was a crazy, crazy, amazing athlete. And it's really neat to hear that uh, he had the kind of personality where it didn't go to his head, even though he was considered basically a, a mythical Paul Bunyan-like figure. So that was fun. That was eye-opening. Um, and I appreciate Jeff for coming by. Uh, let's look at my schedule, everybody, because I have stuff coming up. And it starts on Sunday. On Sunday, I have Damien Hasty. Damien Hasty is a, um, he lives, I believe, in Scotland. I'm going to have to, uh, he lives in the UK. Um, let's put it that way. And he has, he is like a fountain of information when it comes to the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church and their uh, business ties, their front companies, uh, their political ties, and how they, are able to secure uh, sole-sourced, uh, non-compete contracts with so many different governments around the world. Almost always conservative governments, uh, provincial governments here in Canada, uh, federal governments in the UK, uh, Australia, both levels, I believe, uh, and New Zealand. And in New Zealand, the Plymouth Brethren even went as far as putting a private investigator on the husband of the sitting prime minister and then somehow successfully, or I think maybe they were caught trying to go through, no, they actually, they were successful. I believe going through the prime minister's garbage uh, to dig up dirt because uh, I believe it was either a, uh, they, they retracted or they took away their tax exempt status uh, or it was because um they didn't get a contract. I can't remember exactly what it was. Or it was just policies that didn't enrich them and the Hales family and, or not the Hales family. Yeah. Yeah. The Hales family. And they, they actually put investigators against the sitting prime minister. Um, craziest thing ever. Uh, he's not going to talk about that. He's going to talk about more of the UK stuff and the government Plymouth brethren ties and connections there. And again, the sole source contracts and the front companies and all that kind of stuff. Um, from what I'm told and from my uh you know exchanges with him he is might be you know uh top three in the world of person people that can actually you know decipher and and analyze the brethren businesses and and see what they're up to and the political influences like he he knows his shit so um that should be a fun show and until then we will see you. I don't even know if anyone's out there, to be honest with you, because there's, I don't know if my chat's busted or if it's just a slow night, but uh, it, it was fun. I hope you guys enjoyed that with Jeff Perlman, and we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Black Ball. Black
the podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares. It's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.